0: Disciples Church is a church plant in Canyon, Texas. We are a church without walls that is focused on evangelism and discipleship. We believe that we are saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus, and are on mission with Jesus. Join us as we make disciples verse by verse. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Uh, Mark chapter 10, we're looking at verses 32 through 34. Um, I know you're all sitting down, but I want you to stand um, so we can honor the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. They were on the road going up, say going up, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid, say afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them things that would happen to them. See, we are going up, say going up. Going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Say, hand him over to the Gentiles. That phrase is going to be super important here in a minute. You need to pay attention to it. You need to mark it in your Bibles. Hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him. They will spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. This is God's word. You may be seated. How many of you are, are pretty addicted to taking photos with your phone? Taking lots of photos, who does that? Okay, so there's a difference in, in taking a, a, a family portrait and taking a candid. Do you know what a candid is? Okay, somebody tell me the difference. What's the difference in a family portrait and a candid? Perfect, a candid is not posed. Do you understand that? So family photos, if you're like our family, can be pretty stressful to get six people to sit down at one time and everybody smile. It can be very, very difficult. Um, there's one that kind of comes back to my mind. Uh, this is whenever Carter was younger. Carter, I hate to embarrass you, um, but we were at these, we were taking some family photos out on the north side of town, out in a really pretty area, and Carter just would not smile. Like there was nothing that we could do to get him to smile. He was very overwhelmed and upset for some reason. And you know this if you're like us, when you pay for family, you know, photos, you kind of want them to be nice. Like, you want everybody to smile. So we begged and pleaded and bribed Carter with everything. Then we turned to threats, right? We thought, well, at least we'll threaten him and that'll make him happier. Um, that didn't work. Um, so we eventually started, you know, giving him goldfish. And we're like, if maybe if he's just eating something, he'll smile. So this is our famous, like, Carter family photo where he's holding goldfish in his hand and it didn't work. <laughs> he still didn't smile. But I love this picture because it's just, it's really a candid. Do you understand the difference? No matter what we did, we could not alter the outcome of that photo. So think about that for just I'll a little at it if you want. It's super, it's really funny when you think about it. But, but James is right. Family portraits or family photos are staged. Well, like with all of your might, you try to gather your family around and get everybody to smile and it hardly ever happens. And honestly, at some, sometimes it kind of feels like maybe there's just a demon assigned to making family photos hard right? Because it never just works out the way you want it to. In fact, the first time I ever hurt my back in a really bad way was at a family photo. I was actually tossing Christian up in the air. And as soon as he came back down, my L4 and L5 bulged. And like, it took everything I could just to smile for the rest of the family photos. And then Sarah had to lay me in the back seat of a car. We had to call a chiropractor who's a friend of mine just to get me reset. And that was, it was just miserable. And those pictures are floating around somewhere. And I remember being in so much pain, just trying to smile that it it was horrible, horrible experience. So but candids are different. okay candids you know like with, the, with, the, with the, uh, the invention of cell phone cameras, it all becomes a little bit different, a different way of capturing life. Um, there's no hiding things. you can't smile, you can't fake it. In fact, we kind of enjoy it, right? Like we kind of take pictures we like taking pictures that are real and authentic. We like to capture things in the moment. So candids are real life actual shots and you can't hide anything. In our passage this morning in three verses, Mark is going to give us a candid, and it's very odd, and you really have to pay attention, but it's he's given us an insight to real life, to what's really going on to those who are standing around Jesus. And this is the picture. If you, if you notice, look back at those three verses. This is the picture. You have three groups of people in view. You have Jesus, who is alone, and he's walking ahead of the rest of them, and then he's walking with a purpose. I want you to notice that he's creating distance between himself and the disciples. Right? And then we have the disciples who are kind of following along in the background, and they have an astonishment to them. They're kind of astonished at what is going on. You should be asking the question, what are they astonished about? Right? That just makes sense. And then you have a third group of people. Do you see them? What are they doing? They're following, but they're afraid. They're but they're afraid. They are filled with fear. And so we have a candid... We have a real-life snapshot in time of three different kinds of people, and I just want you to see all of the emotion and all of the tension that's going on there. This should provoke questions. This should draw out some, some things that you just want to know. This candid, this picture will require a, quite a bit of explanation, but the, all, everything we need to understand the text is actually right there once you understand the original audience. So why, like, like why is Mark taking this candid shot here? What's going on that Mark, that, that Mark thought it was so important that he needed to pass it on through 2,000 years of church history? Why these three verses? Why right now? Why right after what he just talked about in discipleship? And then, and like, why now to paint the picture like this? Okay, here is the big idea. Here is the, the this is what I think the three, the three verses are all about. Um, we'll have to break it down quite a bit, but this is your big idea this morning. Nothing will stop Jesus from completing his mission. Okay. Nothing will stop Jesus from completing his mission. That includes the cross, that includes opposition from the Pharisees, that includes his followers, creating distance between him and them, right? There's so many things that are going to try to stop Jesus from completing his mission, but I want you to see this. This text is painting a picture for us of a Savior who who will let nothing stop him from completing his mission. So if you remember back, we had two previous passion predictions. Remember the passion predictions or whenever Jesus predicts his own death and how he's going to die. There's been two previous ones so far, so far in the book of Mark. This is the third and final one. And there are patterns in the predictions. These are things that you're going to want to pay attention to. All three of the predictions had this same pattern. He predicts his death, and then there's a failure of the disciples to follow the teaching, and then he follows that teaching with the implications of discipleship. Okay, so let me give it to you again so you can think through the pattern. There's a prediction of his death. There's a failure of the disciples to understand it. And then he goes on to teach about the implications of discipleship. The second passion happened in chapter, or the first one happened in chapter 8, verse 31. The first passion prediction was then countered by Peter's failure to recognize that Jesus must suffer and die. And so then Jesus takes Peter aside and rebukes him, and he says, get behind me who? Satan that was that was Peter's failure and then he went on to teach the implications of discipleship and then in the second passion prediction was in chapter 9 verse 31 um, and that followed with the disciples failing again right they had an argument among themselves about who is the what. The greatest, you remember, good. They, they were fighting about it, like, like we want to know, like, which one of us is the greatest, right? That's very silly. And then Jesus takes them aside again and teaches the implications of discipleship as it relates to marriage and divorce and children, right? We talked about that, and in, in your possessions last week. And then now we have the third and final passion prediction in chapter 10, verses 33 through 34. And immediately following this passion prediction, there will be another failure by the disciples, followed by major, major teachings on the implications of discipleship. But the content this morning I was very intentional about this, and I hope you see it. Um, I don't want to really go into those discipleship failures yet. I just want to focus on three verses so we can understand that Jesus will stop at nothing to complete his mission. These three verses propel us forward to the cross. You'll understand in a minute. But the final passion prediction is, is filled with vivid details that aren't in the other two. If you go read the other two Passion Predictions, they're not like this one. This one has so much detail in it that if you you just slow down for a moment, you're gonna capture six things in a minute that you can see in three verses that should blow your mind. See, Mark is doing something. Like he's taking a candid, he's taking a shot in time, and he's showing us that Jesus is on his way to deal with our biggest problem. What is our biggest problem? I... Okay, we got sin, we got lack of a belief. Let me tell you what your biggest problem is: the wrath of God. He is on his way to deal with the wrath of God, and you would not know that if you didn't understand the original context of this of this scene. And so, it's my job this morning to try to just examine and, and observe and just kind of point you to what's going on. He's headed toward the wrath of God. Okay, so let us look back at verses thir- at verse thirty-two real quick. Okay, he is going up to Jerusalem, right? Like, this is not only appropriate. Look at verse 32 for me. They were on the road going up. You need to understand what going up means. Okay, going up to to Jerusalem is not only the appropriate description because they are rising in elevation as they get closer to Jerusalem, but they're going up as well because they're entering a new season. It's called the Passover season. Are you familiar with that? Okay, so we all kind of want to ask the question, why is Jesus on the road to Jerusalem? Well, the reason why he's on the road to Jerusalem is because there's a large group of people who are Jewish who are also on their way to Jerusalem. They're all going up to Jerusalem together to celebrate the Passover feast. And if you know anything about what's going to happen in the Passion Week, what day does Jesus get crucified on? the Friday, the day that the Passover lamb gets crucified on. So he's going up not only because he's going up in elevation, he's also going up because they're going to celebrate the Passover feast. But even more than that, um, like, so think about this just for a moment. You have everybody else who is moving with excitement, right? If you're going to celebrate the Passover feast, you're excited about that. I would be, like if we were all going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together, I would be so, so excited. But, but listen here. Think about this for a moment. Jesus knows what's coming. Do you understand that? So you have, you have a large group of Jews heading up to Jerusalem who are excited. But then you have Jesus. Is Jesus excited about this? We don't know. Like, we know he's determined, right? Like he's walking ahead of the group. And so then we have to kind of step back and say, if all of the Jews are excited, why are his disciples astonished? And why are the people who are following Jesus afraid? Do you understand? There's a We have a problem in the text. Do you understand? Because everybody else, except for Jesus, should be excited about going to Jerusalem. So there is something going on. Okay, however, so jesus unlike everybody else has a reason to not be excited about it but the disciples and the group of people who are following jesus don't have that same reason so very very soon in just a few chapters the son of god will be called to go up on something else do you know what he's going to go up on he's going to go up on the cross and so this journey for him i want you to see the tension in jesus's heart as he's walking this journey for him is not a fun-filled journey he is marching toward his own death And no one will stop him. That's what you need to see. No one's going to be able to stand in his way, and nobody's going to be able to stop him. Oh, yeah, we're going to to talk about it here in a minute, Bear. He absolutely knew it. The Pharisees so far understand the scene. So far, the Pharisees have been coming down from Jerusalem. They've been coming down from the holy mountain, right, from Jerusalem, coming down toward who? To Jesus, to try to stop him from doing what? From spreading his gospel right from preaching in all the towns and healing the sick and raising the dead right? they've been trying to stop him so they've been coming down for, from Jerusalem and from their self-righteous exalted position and now Jesus is going to them to oppose them notice this he could have ran the other way right wisdom would have told him you have a group of people who are trying to kill you right you should go the other way but instead of going the opposite way he turns around and goes up toward them this is very very important so Jesus is walking ahead Look at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking where? Ahead of them. them. Notice that for a moment. He's doing it without support. He knows where he's going, and he knows the trial is going to be difficult. And he knows that those around him aren't prepared to stand with him, and so he gets out ahead of them. So far, in the book of Mark, if you love Mark the way I have come to love Mark, you can tell that Mark has an eye for detail, okay? Okay mark is giving us something really specific in just a few words he's giving us something very specific that you need to pay attention to okay they were on the road going up to jerusalem and jesus was walking where okay ask the question why why is he ahead of them so even though jesus knows what's waiting for him in jerusalem the opposition has come down he now turns around and starts moving toward the enemy's headquarters why is he walking alone and why is he moving toward the enemy all by himself to a group of people remember who the pharisees are right we 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 argue this back and forth but honestly the pharisees would have looked like like really pretty good church people okay but those people were bent on killing him if you remember early in the book of mark they were what they were plotting remember that They were plotting and they were making plans to kill him. And then they send people out down down from Jerusalem to find him to try to kill him. And so the very group of people that want to kill him, he's now walking right into their headquarters. Think about that for a moment. You have a man who knows that there's a group of people who want to kill him. And instead of turning around and walking away from them, where is he going? Okay, notice that the disciples are astonished. Look on in verse 32. The disciples were astonished. Do you see why they're astonished? The Pharisees would, are going to kill him. They, they they, know that. And so they must be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus, this doesn't make any sense to us. Do you, do you see what I'm seeing? Do you see this? But not only that, the people around Jesus must also understand that truth, because they are what? They're afraid. Have you ever seen a man walk to his own death? Okay, imagine that for just a moment. Huh? Yeah, great illustration. Imagine imagine what you see when you see somebody who's walking toward their own death, okay? You see somebody who is on purpose walking toward the edge of a cliff, okay? How would you feel about that? Right, especially if you knew that cliff had lots of torture in its path, right? Like it's not just falling off the cliff and you're dead, but they know if he walks into the Pharisees' hands, there will be torture. Like, there will be torture. There's no doubt about it. And so imagine the emotion. Like you have this, this, the disciples who have been with Jesus for some time, and then you have the people around him who have been watching him, and they love him. He's been preaching to them, including them in, and treating them like insiders and healing the sick and, and feeding them. And so you have this group of people who are watching their rabbi, Jesus, walk toward his own death. Do you understand why they're afraid? Yes. I would be too. If I knew somebody was walking towards something that was going to kill them, that would make me very, very uncomfortable. There is something about this text, if you understand what's going on, that should give you all kinds of strength to know that that you're following the right king, okay? The candid reaction cannot be missed. The disciples are astonished and the people are afraid. The king is marching straight toward what? His death. So friends, notice what's about to begin. I I hope as you follow in the book of Mark, you see it now. It is on. Do you understand? It is on. It is on like the king is ready to go to war and if and everybody around him saw this okay he's been hiding remember he's been hiding in the judean countryside he's been hiding in the land of the gentiles right and now he has turned and he's faced toward jerusalem and he's going up in opposition it is on okay like the war is about to begin so pay attention okay and notice this right they walk behind him they're afraid they keep their distance from him right which is very interesting you would think that this group of people who have just seen everything that Jesus has done would be where? In front of him. him. That's what I thought. I thought, man, if I, you would want to protect him, right? But they don't do that. And that's almost what gets under my skin a little bit. You think like, this is almost, if you're really paying attention, it's almost a portrayal of what Peter's about to do to Jesus by denying him three times. The denial of Jesus actually starts right here. They, they could have been walking right beside him, they could have been in front of him, they could have been near him, but instead the text lets us see that they're creating distance. They're letting him walk ahead, almost like they know what's coming and they want nothing to do with it. Do you understand? This is a very lonely, lonely scene. Okay, in chapter 9, verse 32, the second passion was predicted and all the disciples were afraid. In chapter 10, Jesus starts to preach this new message on discipleship and they become astonished right and then he tells them that it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle and they become even more astonished right even kind of frustrated right and jesus rebukes and there's all kinds of tension in this whole scene and then we get here and you have jesus out striding in front of them and they don't want to keep up do you understand what's happening there's separation he's pulling away from the pack he's about to go be alone so you never have to be that's what you need to understand about this text he's going somewhere to be alone, so you never have to be. See, given the opposition that has come down from Jerusalem, there's this dreadful sense that Jesus is headed in the wrong direction. Right? You know that Jerusalem is opposed to who he is. And so when you see him walking that way, you must be thinking, if you're on the scene, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you going there? Like, like, you're going to be killed. This doesn't make any sense to me. Okay? Any of us would have tried to stop him, I think. I think. And sensing this, notice what Jesus does next right at the beginning of verse, or right in the middle of verse 32. He takes them aside. So Jesus, sensing this, he cares for them, he takes them aside, and he begins to tell them again for a third time the reason in which he came. So the third prediction of his death is the most descriptive in the other passion predictions. Let me read verses 33 through 34 for you, and then we'll point out the six things that you need to see. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then he will be handed over to the Gentiles, say handed over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will kill him and he will rise after three days. This is the most descriptive experience, like this is the most descriptive passion prediction in the Gospels. Let me give it to you slowly. Okay, six specific categories that you need to see that he predicts. Nobody else could have predicted this. First of all, he predicts that he'll be handed over by the chief priests and the scribes. That's number one. Okay, the second thing that he predicts is that he will be sentenced to death. Do you see that? The third thing he predicts is he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. Very interesting. Okay, the fourth thing he predicts is he says he will be mocked, um, spit on, and flogged. Okay, this is Roman torture. He, he then goes on to say he will be killed. Number five, and then most, the miracle of all. Number six, he says he will rise from the dead after three days. Okay, six things that he predicts. If you would have been present at this prediction, like you would have seen Jesus communicating this message, not as a, as a humble, meek man, because notice where he's coming from. He's coming off the stride. Do you understand? He's leading the pack. He's pulling away. He's out in front, right? He's not backing down from what's coming in Jerusalem. Do you think he would have turned around and slowly explained this to them? I don't see it. I see a man who's marching toward a mission where he turns around and he says, listen, I'm telling you what's about to happen. Let me be very clear with you. Okay, let me, let me be extremely clear with you so you understand what's going to happen when I get to, to Jerusalem. I will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. Do you understand? He's not just whispering to this at, at, like to them at this point. He's actually telling them with force, like saying, "I'm going to be sentenced to death. Do you understand what's coming? I am going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock on they will mock me, spit on me and flog me and they will kill me. But then I will rise from the dead after 3 days." If you had been present for this, there would be no mistake. Jesus would be clearly articulating to you that six things are about to happen. Okay? This is super, super, super important. See, Mark is making it very, very clear to all the readers like you and me. Did Jesus know what was coming? He did. Jesus did not walk into Jerusalem expecting for everything to go well. Do you understand that? He knew exactly what was coming. His death was not a tragedy. Um, it, was not something, it, was, it was not something that wasn't supposed to happen. His death was planned from the very beginning. He went up to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to go up on a cross and pay the price for what we did wrong. Okay, these are precise details that give us a gruesome account of what is going to happen. Jesus knows exactly what's coming, and is he stopping, no, that's what you need to see. Like, you need to see there's nothing that's going to stop him from his mission. Not even the cross, not even the flogging, not the spitting, not the beating. Nothing is going to stop him. In the first prediction, with Peter, he said, I would suffer many things. That's what he said, one prediction. Okay, in the second one, he gave a little more detail. But now in the third one, he gives it full of life and color and makes no mistake. Everybody who's following me, everybody behind me, right, you need to understand. Like, we, when I, when he gets there... He's going to face six things. He knows what's coming. He's not slowing down. He's walking with force. He's getting out in front of them. This man is going to war. Okay, he knows. He knows. Just say that. He knows. He knows. And that didn't stop him. That should give you all kinds of hope. Okay, he already knew. He already knew that Judas was going to betray him. Do you understand that? He already knew that he was going to get handed over and get a false, you know, a, a false trial. He already knew exactly what was going to happen. Okay, and so that is why the disciples are astonished. Do you see it? That's why there's tension. They're thinking, "You know that, then why are you going?" That doesn't make any sense to me. Right? They they would be preserving their life. You know what I mean? If any of us knew that our death was going to be coming if we walked a certain way, we would turn around and walk the other way. Agreed? None of us would be walking into our own death, especially a death like this one. But this prediction is filled with theological richness and meaning that you will miss if you're not one of the original Jews who read this text. I told you to underline what phrase a while ago when we were reading. handing him over to the gentiles. Okay, this verse, well, this little section, this little this little tagline should blow your mind. I missed it and I studied it over and over and over and then finally in Peter Bolt's book, this is a fantastic book by the way. It's called The Cross at a Distance would highly recommend that you get that book and read that book. Um, It's one of the commentary kind of books that I've been using through the book of Mark, The the Cross at a Distance. This is what he said in the book, Peter Bolt. The detail of him being handed over to the Gentiles is rarely examined. He writes an an examination of this phrase of of the Old Testament does not refer to the way that things would happen. It actually has a deeper theological meaning. The evil of this action, say evil, of this action would have been a, like apparent to anyone with an understanding of the Old Testament. Let me say that to you again. This one phrase, being handed over to the Gentiles, this, this would have been like this. Oh, it's not just a simple way of saying he's handed over, but he's saying this one phrase is an evil action that any of the original readers would have immediately understood. To hand someone over to the Gentiles is the equivalent of handing somebody over to God's wrath. Okay, it's the same thing. Let me, let me read from you. Um, this comes from Psalm chapter 106, um, verses 40 through 42. The original audience, the Jewish people, the people all around him, as soon as he said, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, they would have immediately known that he was saying, I'm about to be handed over to the wrath of God. Okay, in Psalm chapter 106, verses 40 through 42, this is what it says. Therefore, the Lord was angry. Say angry. That's wrath. He was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Every Jew who's looking at this text would have immediately understood whenever Jesus said, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, what he's really saying is I'm going to be handed over to the anger of God. Okay, this has major, major implications for you and I. The wrath of God, okay, is evident in the delivering of people over to Gentile nations. So now, think about this for a moment. The disciples know that the Pharisees are opposed to Jesus, right? Right? Okay? Hang hang with me for a minute. The disciples know that Jesus is not popular with the other religious leaders, Okay, but now imagine being a disciple, following Jesus, and then Jesus says, in a language that they understand, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over to the wrath of God. How would you feel about that? Very scared. First of all, you might be thinking, why am I following this man who's about to be handed over to the wrath of God, right? Like, he must be doing something wrong. Do you understand? That's the first thoughts that have been spinning through their mind. They would have first been thinking, Ooh, we made a mistake. Like, we saw this guy was off the chain whenever, like, the Pharisees started trying to kill him. But now, we're following a man who's going to go and get handed over to the wrath of God, and he's okay with it? Like, there's something broken in this scene. Do you understand? So now we have a a feeling of, like, if I wish you could just see the disciples' face. You know, without a doubt, they must be, like, really second-guessing their choice to follow him. Do you understand? They must be thinking, man, this guy is crazy. And, And then Peter Bolt goes on to make it very clear in his book that the horror like horror of this action, would have been apparent to anyone. As soon as he said, I'm being handed over to the Gentiles, everyone who was around him would have immediately understood this guy is wrong and he is going to be dealt with by God. Okay, that's a very, very bad feeling. So Jesus makes it clear. Did he know that was coming? Okay, in just two verses... Jesus lays out his death in a way that everyone can understand, and they're still missing it, okay? In just two verses, he makes it very clear by giving them six details, but what I want you to see is there's two groups of people that hand Jesus over. There's Jews, and there's who? Both. Like, this is God's theological way of communicating that not only the Jews will be saved, but the Gentiles will as well, because we're all complicit in the death of Christ. Do you understand? Like, the question is, who killed Jesus? We all did. Jews and Gentiles handed him over to the wrath of God. We are all complicit in the death of Jesus. This verse captures the true divine plan, right? This is the divine plan that you need to understand if you're going to understand the book of Mark. The world hated God. Okay? Whenever Jesus stepped on the scene in perfection, did they love him? no they hated him and so then they the jews who see him hand him over to the gentiles and the gentiles do what with him they slaughter him right literally slaughter him i mean like rip the skin off of his back or i mean beat him till he can't be seen his face would have been so distorted that you wouldn't know what you're looking at but this is the divine plan the father is at work making a way for us all to be saved Fill the plan. Ultimately, God the Father sends his Son to be rejected by the world. And, this, and the world is going to take Jesus and beat him to death and then hang him on a cross and let him die before God. Right? And then in while Jesus is on the cross, the famous words that he cries out is what? Uh, my father, my father, why have you me? Yeah, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? We talked about this over and over and over. What's the worst part of the cross? God turning his back on his only son. For all of eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were joined together in perfect fellowship, right? And then one moment in time, Jesus does something. He faces the wrath of God and that at one moment in time, the Father breaks fellowship with the Son, and that's what takes his life. Do you understand? As soon as God turns his back on his son, then he cries out into the heavens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He breathes his last breath and he dies. Jesus was all alone, so you don't have to be, okay? This text has so many implications for us. Nothing will stop Jesus from completing his mission, okay? Nothing will. He was aware, completely aware, that he was going to be handed over by the Father into the wicked hands of men, not for his sins, right, not for his sins, but for the sins of others, so that he might suffer and, and represent them as a perfect sacrifice, breathing his last, last breath and saving us at the same time. He's fully aware of what's going on. Okay. Can you imagine for a moment being a disciple watching this going on? The disciples have seen the rabbi rejected by men, but now he must go and face the wrath of God and they know what's coming. They know it's coming. Do you understand why Peter ran from him and and, and denied him? It wasn't like Peter was just like, I'm scared like i'm just going to deny him no he was denying him because jesus is going to face the wrath of god <laughs> okay it's a very scary thing right do you see now like just for a moment do you see why jesus is out in front of them why is jesus out in front of them He's the only one that can complete it. thank you josh he is the only one who can complete it you could try to walk stride and stride and step by step by jesus being fearless and brave but you don't have what it takes to go to the cross and die for your own sins. You would never survive that. And so Jesus, as the true leader, the true hero, the true king, takes off and gets out in front of all of his disciples and leads the way. And then he goes up the cross and dies in our place. None of us can die in our own place, but he died in our place. The mocking and the spitting and and, and the joining in on the crowds, hurting him, the, the Jews and the Romans represents all of us standing back and participating in his death. Okay, if any of us were there, we would all be crying the same thing, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We on this side of the cross know that if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, we don't get saved. Okay, without a doubt, it's a hard thing to admit to, but we would all be yelling the same thing. So fill the tension in three verses. Okay, so what does this have to do with you and me? What does this have to do with us? So let's talk for a few moments on just what discipleship is, okay? Discipleship is not only characterized by good behavior, okay? Or how we act in marriage from verses 1 through 12 of chapter 10, or how we treat children in verses 13 through 16. Discipleship is not only about how we handle our possessions, right? We talked about that last week in, in verses 17 through 31, Instead, um, discipleship is actually demonstrated by Bartimaeus. Do you guys know who Bartimaeus is? Well, I'm not going to get too far ahead, but I want you to flip over to verse 52 of chapter 10. Let me read this for you really quickly. Yeah, chapter 10, verse 52. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see, and he began to follow Jesus on the road. Chapter 10 is about to blow your mind when we get to this section. Okay. Let me read it to you again. Jesus said to him, this is Bartimaeus, Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. And instead of going, it says immediately he could see, and he began to follow Jesus on the road. This is very interesting. In three verses, Jesus was walking along a road. He was leading himself to the cross to deal with the wrath of God, and then, if you look closely at verse 52, Bartimaeus will start to mimic the same behavior. This is very, very interesting. I don't have that's a whole other sermon, and I cannot wait to get to verse 52. Like Bartimaeus in verse 52, you're going to have to observe your Savior walking on the road and have to join him. There's nothing involuntary. There's nothing unforeseen in our Lord's suffering. Let me say that to you again, okay? There's nothing involuntary or nothing unforeseen. Did Jesus know he was going to die? Did Jesus know his life was going to be very hard if he continued down that road? Okay, in discipleship, are you looking for an easy life or a hard life? You should be looking for a hard life. Most of us quit when it gets hard, okay? That's just the truth of the human condition. So we need to learn to walk like Bartimaeus, like who sees that Jesus is going in a certain direction. and, And even though Jesus knows he's going to his death, Bartimaeus will get on the road and follow him. It was his free and and, and determined, deliberate choice to follow on the road. And so from the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he knew the cross was coming. He knew his death would be the payment to reconcile God to man. Even though he was absolutely perfect, he did not deserve the wrath of God, right? He knew the wrath of God would destroy him and kill him. He marched on. And and so at, at the appointed time, Jesus becomes our faithful substitute, but it starts on the road. He is out in front and he is walking. So this should cause you to feel a certain way about your Savior. Is he fearless does he know what's coming does he stop okay then let me ask you a question do you stop cuz cuz discipleship is about becoming like who Jesus and if you're like me more than I can count I am more tempted to stop when it gets hard Okay, to stop pursuing holiness and stop pursuing righteousness and stop pursuing um, being kind and loving and and loving my neighbors, myself, or 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 like even like using my money in a way that honors God. Like I'm more tempted to quit than ever. Okay, but there's something that we have to see. What what is stopping you from completing your discipleship? Okay, we want to be like him. Are you? I would, I, would, I would say I'm not. Okay, but this text is, has inspired me in a new way to, to run up and catch up to Jesus and try to follow him. I hope it's done the same for you. I hope you see the truth of this text. Because Jesus knew what was coming. Did he know that you were going to fail? Did, he, did that stop him from going to the cross? Because like, Jesus saw that you were going to quit, right? Like Jesus saw that you were going to pray for a season and then you would be years before you started praying again. Did that stop Jesus from dying for you? No. And, and so and so you, maybe you've been like plugged into devotional content and you've been studying the word of God for a long time, but maybe you haven't. Maybe you've stopped, right? And it's been years since you've actually picked up your Bible on your own and studied the word of God. Is that enough to stop Jesus from coming after you? See, that's what you have to see about our beautiful Christ. Like, a, like there's nothing that could stop him, not even your own sin, not even you stopping like there's something so beautiful about him that whenever I look at the cross and I look at about how how determined he was, it makes him worth worshiping. Would you agree? I, agree? I would too. So I, so this text, if you're like me, makes me just want to step back and worship God even more. Although he knew I would fail him in every single way, that I would give up and I'd want to quit, he never did. Do you understand? He went to be all alone by going up to Jerusalem, by going up to a cross so we never have to be. Nothing will stop Jesus, not even you, from completing his mission. This is Mark chapter 10, right? 32 through 34. Thank you for listening to this message. If you would like to know more about Jesus, the gospel, discipleship, or disciples church, you can contact me at ChristopherHogue at yahoo.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-H-O-G-U-E at yahoo.com. Church, we have been sent into the world to make disciples, let's go make disciples.